Well, we're going through Galatians. You know why we do this? Because God gave us the whole Word of God. I think one of the tragedies in Western preaching is that there's no longer any expository teaching, which is going through whole books. And so as a result, the people of God, the children of God, don't know the Bible. They don't understand the great doctrines, the theology, the sweeping themes of Scripture. They don't know it. And I think not knowing that produces anemic Christians. So on Wednesday nights, and I'm going to tell you, it's not always easy. It takes a lot of studying, but on Wednesday nights, we're going to go through books because obviously people want to know the Word of God. And I believe the more you can get, the the stronger your faith is. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So we're in Galatians chapter 5 tonight, and uh, let's pray together, and let's ask God to speak to us. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you that you have breathed out this Word. You preserved it through the centuries and through the millennia. You protected it from the attacks of Satan and preserved it so we can have 66 books of your very word in our hands. And we pray that tonight you will speak to us and build us up in the faith, give us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding that we are wise concerning the way of life in Jesus Christ. Breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, speak to me tonight. And I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. It's going to be good tonight. All right, Galatians. Tonight we're looking at the law of liberty. Now, by the way, if you uh, should want these notes, they're available out there if you want to get the notes. And uh, by the time we're done, you'll have a little book on the book of Galatians. And um, let's look now. Last time we uh, looked at what Paul's, or Paul's allegory of the bondwoman and the free woman. The bondwoman was symbolized by Hagar and her offspring Ishmael. And these two, said Paul, <clears throat> represented the flesh, the works of the flesh, the effort of man's will. And we talked about how we can hatch our own Ishmaels if we want to, but they tend to not bless you. Amen? That means you decide to help God out with his purpose for your life and take matters into your own hands and make something happen. How many have ever given birth to an Ishmael somewhere in your life? Tell the truth. The rest of you just did by telling a story. All right. Now, the free woman was symbolized by Sarah and Isaac. And these two represented the spirit, the product of faith. And freedom. That's what we want in our lives, beginning with our salvation. Now, this time we're going to begin with chapter 5. And as we go through chapter 5 and on into chapter 6, we're going to see a total of four laws. We can call them four spiritual laws, but four laws that Paul's going to talk about. Here they are. Read them with me, would you? The law of liberty in Christ in the first 15 verses, the law of likeness to Christ in 16 through 26, the law of love for Christ and the law of life in Christ. Now those are laws. So the law of liberty in Christ, the law of likeness to Christ, the law of love for Christ, 
and the law of life in Christ. Now, after having shown the futility of returning to the old law, now for those of you who are here for the first time, and just for summation, let's remember that Galatians is all about, um, Paul led these people to Christ in Galatia, birthed a church, had to leave as he always did, and as soon as he was gone, the wolves came in. And that's what happens. Take the strong man out, and the wolves come in. When the wolves came in, they were Judaizers. Judaizers were uh, those that taught that uh, you had to observe the Old Testament. And they were teaching the Galatians that they had to mix Old Testament law with their newfound faith in Christ. And it was corrupting them. It was corrupting their faith. It wasn't true. You don't. Because the law of life in Christ has replaced us having to achieve righteousness through the law because we never could. But here he was trying to, they were trying to corrupt the Galatians. And Paul is amazed. And one of his great statements in the book is, who in the world has bewitched you? Having begun in the spirit, are you now perfected in the flesh? Of course not. He's amazed that they have so soon and easily departed from the faith. And they're just about to apostatize or to walk away. He's, he's concerned about that. Matter of fact, he's not only concerned, he's angry. Angry with a righteous anger. He was angry at these Judaizers that were corrupting them. And he was very, very disappointed in the people that he had led to Christ. So he's talking to them and coming at them from many, many different angles to get them to see, what in the world are you doing returning to the law and the feasts? And all these different things that you observed that never did bring you righteousness. And now you're going back, having found righteousness by faith in Christ alone. So after having shown the futility of returning to the old law and having illustrated that they have been made truly free in Christ, Paul begins by saying, let's read it together. This is one of my favorites. Read it good and loud. Preach to me. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Give God a hand. I love that. Isn't that good stuff? <clears throat> now, for them, this had to do with going back to that law. But for us, what is it? <clears throat> what were we entangled in before Christ? What had us? Same thing applies. Your liberty in Christ is going to be challenged. Your walk with the Lord is going to be challenged by hell and by the world. So the same word comes to you and me pertaining to whatever it was that entangled us in the past. Stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. And don't you dare let yourself be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Whatever the bondage was, any bondage is bad. Amen? Now, in the next 15 verses, he's going to focus on the foundation of our liberty in Christ, the foes of our liberty in Christ, and the frontiers of our liberty in Christ. So the foundation, the foes, and the frontiers of the liberty we have in Jesus Christ. Well, what's the foundation? The foundation is you are free in Christ. That's the foundation. Freedom began with Jesus. 
Freedom is not being able to go and do whatever you want to do. I'm going to say that again because some of you think that's what freedom is. Freedom is not the liberty to go and do whatever you want to do when you want to do it. That's not freedom. Freedom is the power to do what you should do. Because until you know Jesus, you can't do everything you should do because you're locked into sin and you're controlled by flesh. So freedom in the the liberty to go do whatever you want is the power to do what you ought. Mull that one over. That's worth going to sleep on tonight. Now, what did it say? Jesus said, if the son, me, therefore shall make you free, that's when you're really free free indeed. When you have the power to do what you ought, that's when you're really free. And only Jesus can make you free to live a righteous life. Now, Jesus had said this to men who thought they were free, but they were actually the slaves of sin. Mankind has always longed for, longed for and demanded freedom. Yet one might be free to come and go as one likes and not be truly free. True freedom is within Say it again. True freedom is within you. Freedom is an inside job. True freedom is to be free of the shackles of sin. True freedom is when you have the power to say no to sin. Because nobody else out there can do it. If you're lost, you can't do it. You're going to live in sin. But if you're in Christ, we're going to see tonight and next week, we're going to see that you can say no and you can live free from the shackles and entanglements and bondages of sin. He's the only way. So if the Son makes you free, that's when you're really free. Freedom, now here I already quoted myself, but here it is again. Let's read it together. Freedom is not the ability to do what one wants, but is the power to do what one should. Let that sink in. <clears throat> that's a different concept. Now the word Paul uses for liberty means deliverance from slavery. Because we were all slaves. Everyone in here, you never were your own person. You never were an independent person. We were all enslaved to sin. That's the truth. Now, I found this interesting. In Paul's day, the Greeks had a roundabout way of securing freedom for a slave. A god, now we're talking about an idol, one of the Greek gods. You know, you've read Iliad and Odyssey and Homer's writings and whatnot, all the Greek mythological gods there were. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. And Rome had skedaddles of gods, gods everywhere. They didn't care if you worshiped Jesus as long as you didn't demand that Jesus was the only god. You could put your god in with all the others and they were fine. If you went saying, Caesar's not my God, and Jesus Christ is the only real God, then they killed you. Now, a God, in their thinking, one of these mythological gods, supposedly purchased the delivered slave. The slave provided the money, but because slaves had no legal standing, he could not purchase himself. So his master paid the required amount into the temple treasury. Now, not the Judaistic temple, not the Hebrew temple, but the idol temple. 
the temple for idols. Pay the required amount into the temple treasury on the slave's behalf. And a document bearing the words, quote, for freedom was written up. Then because the slave was now the property of a god, nobody could enslave him again. Free, says Paul, you have been purchased, but not by a fictitious God. You have been bought, paid for, ransomed, redeemed, liberated, let out of prison by the very Son of God and His blood, and nobody, I'm going to say it slow, can enslave you again. And if you end up enslaved, you had to let it happen because you don't have to, because now we have a choice. And boy, I can't wait for next week. I'm going to be talking about walking in the spirit so you don't fulfill the lust of the flesh. And it's good. This happens to me every week. I want to go into next week tonight, but I can't do that. So here we go. You've been bought by the very son of God. We've got to get that. You have been purchased with a price, said, said Paul. So therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit. Now, yeah, this is exactly what the Judaizers had been trying to do. Enslave them again. Paul's furious about it. Stand, Paul says. I want everybody to say with me, stand. Stand. You know what bugs me about our current generation? Everybody wimps out. Everybody caves. Everybody finally just gives in and let the, let the world walk all over them. Latest one's the Boy Scouts. I hope they wake up and don't do this. But everybody's caving. But Christians aren't supposed to cave. Christians are supposed to say it again. Stand. Christians are not to back down, bow, break, bend, give in, cry uncle, put up the white flag. No. Christians are supposed to. Paul says one of the apostles' favorite rallying cries was to stand fast. He loved this. He had little phrases he liked. And um, like I shared during the weekend, lay it aside, lay aside the old man, lay aside the old ways, lay aside the flesh and whatnot. But here's one of his favorites. Stand fast. Stand firm. Plant your feet. Don't be moved. Don't budge from your victory. Stand. When faced by wild, undisciplined enemies, here's what the Roman soldiers would do. The Roman soldiers would lock their shields together in a long line, plant their feet firmly on the ground, and they would stand like an iron wall against the invaders. That's what the church is supposed to do. Just like that. We ought to get side by side by side by side, hold up the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit till we become one long Holy Ghost iron wall of righteous resistance and stand. against all invaders. And believe me, Christians and our culture are under massive, breathtaking invasion. 
It seems like every day there's something else in the news where some, somebody caved somewhere and evil made another inroad into our culture. It's time for the church to grow a spine made of Holy Ghost steel and say, you know what? That's far enough. You're not going any further. We stand. We stand together. And we, we create this wall of resistance, and we are not budging. Paul says, stand your ground in the day of attack. That's what we're supposed to do. Stand your ground. We shouldn't yield a single point. So, well, Pastor Jeff, that's the, you must not be willing to grow and, and evolve and um, flex and flow with the way the culture is going. I'm not supposed to. Truth does not adapt itself to a culture. Truth is not something you change based on the whims or desires of people. Truth stands like an unbending steel pillar that never gives in, never changes, no matter what the culture does, no matter what people wish it were. It doesn't give in, it doesn't back down, it doesn't change, and it will set you free. Now... What our culture can't seem to get is truth is truth and error is error. And they don't change. They don't shift. They don't flex. They don't adapt. They don't evolve. And you're not backward or ignorant or a hayseed if you believe that. You're wise because relativism is destroying our culture relativism. That's when truth is totally adaptable and changeable and flexible and flowable. And it's more like Plato than a steel rod. Relativism, where truth is what you decide it is. Relativism, where every man does what is right in his own eyes. Relativism. It has always wrecked cultures. Show me a culture that went into relativism and I'll show you a culture that died. Show me a culture that stayed true to traditional, fixed, unchanging truths, and I'll show you a culture that was strong, as we would say in East Texas, as bear's breath. <laughs> Study history. History talks. History will show you. Relativism is rotting our culture. It's gut rot. It is philosophical gut rot. Relativism. My truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. So don't cramp me with your truth and I won't cramp you with my truth. And can't we all just get along and I'll do what I want and you do what you want. Don't tell me what's right or wrong and I won't tell you what's right or wrong because wrong and right are completely debatable. That culture is going down. Study history. Study Rome. Study Greece. You go back into history and study the great civilizations that have come and gone. And I'll show you when relativism got in there. And immorality became moral, and what was moral became immoral. And right was wrong, and wrong is right, and black is white, and white is black, and good is bad, and bad is good. I'll show you. It self-destructed. It was only a matter of time. Paul says, no, for the church, you stand. The church must not give in on a single crucial issue. Well, Pastor Jeff, can't we just meet people halfway and compromise a little bit in order to get along? Did Jesus? Did John the Baptist 
Say to Herod, hey, Herod, you know, I see that you're in adultery and you got your brother's wife, but, but you know what? I'll blink at that if we can just get along. You know why they killed Jesus? Because he wouldn't compromise. And he wouldn't flex and flow and change and adapt and evolve. He said, here's the condemnation. Light came into the world, and the world loved darkness more than light. He told the truth. He got right in their face, and in love told the truth, and it got him crucified. The church must not give in on a single issue, no matter what the culture says. Be not entangled, Paul warns. Don't allow anybody or anything to put a noose around your neck or chains on your feet to bring you again into bondage. You gotta, ha you gotta have a resolve, church. Are y'all with me tonight? <clears throat> You've gotta have an inward resolve where you've already made up your mind preemptively. I'm not going to, I'm not going to give in. What I know to be true, I'm never gonna compromise that. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you say I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I am allowed to do anything, I must not, read the next part with me, can you? I must not become a slave to anything. You and I are to be a slave to one thing. Tell me what it is. Jesus. Jesus. We are to be his servant, his doulos. That's the Greek word for slave. And you know what? It's funny. When you become his slave, that's when you really get free. And until you become his sold-out servant, you're not really free. It's when you bow and say, Lord, I give you myself, my, all of my dreams, all my aspirations, all that I am, ever could be. I give all of me to you, and I'm going to serve you the rest of my life and become your doulos, your slave. That's when you get free. Y'all are quiet tonight. Y'all are quiet tonight. Wheels are turning. I like the wheels to turn. Now, again, Paul informs them that a return to the law as represented by circumcision, would be completely useless. He says in verses 2 and 3, Indeed I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised for righteousness, obeying that law so that you can be righteous, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, in other words, seeks the law for his or her righteousness, that he's a debtor to keep that whole law. If you're going to go the way of the law, says Paul, rots a ruck. Good luck. Because haven't you already tried this and you couldn't obey it? Why are you trying again? If you return to the law for your salvation, says Paul, you're going to find yourself in the same boat as before, having to keep the whole law. And they would essentially be falling into debt again to the law the debt to God of keeping the law, which they could not do. And should they take that route, they also had a terrible prospect. You're going to go the way of the law. You're going to leave this walk of grace and salvation by faith. And you're going to go back to that law, back to that old life, back to what never could give you righteousness in the first place. You're going back. He said, it's not going to work, but you've got another prospect as well. Here it is. You have become estranged from Christ, says verse 4. 
You who attempt to be justified by law, or where we're concerned, by our own works, doing good deeds, doing good things, feeding the poor, taking a pie to your neighbor, being nice to people, never getting a traffic ticket, being a good citizen. You're going to seek your righteousness by your own good works. He says in verse 4, you have fallen from grace. You're giving up on grace. And now you're leaning on yourself again. Can anybody in here tell me truthfully that before you knew Christ, you were able to achieve genuine righteousness by your own good works? How many of you can remember saying at least once to yourself, I can't believe I'm here again? Come on, everybody. Y'all look at me so holy with those halos over your head. How many of you ever said, I can't believe I did that again? How many of you ever said this, what is wrong with me? <clears throat> because you wanted to do good and you didn't do it, and the very evil you didn't want to do, that's what you did. That's what we're talking about next week. And so it didn't work trying to achieve righteousness by yourself. So Paul's amazed with these people. What are you doing going back? And if you decide to go back and try it again on your own, you've fallen from grace. And this doesn't mean they lost their salvation. It meant they would automatically cut themselves off from the power of Christ in their daily life because they're not leaning on Jesus for righteousness. They're leaning on their own good works once again. A decision to embrace Judaism, a Christ-rejecting religion, meant a decision to renounce Christ. Now, that's serious. That's a serious thing. Bringing this home to us today, let's make it relevant to you and me. Because we're not Jewish in here. We didn't come out of Judaism, most of us. But here's the deal. Should a born-again, Christ-professing Christian be lured away from their genuine walk with Christ into, say, a cult like Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, or into a false religion like Islam, they would essentially be renouncing Christ and his work of grace. Because every one of these, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, any other so-called religion, demands performance on your part to get saved. They require performance you got to do something, achieve something, reach for something. You've got you've to observe certain things or you won't be saved. Not Christianity. By grace, you are saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, lest any man should boast. It is a gift of God. And we don't know what to do with that because we're so performance-oriented. Surely there's something i got to do. No, there's not anything you got to do. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. So, so it takes us a while to, to wrap our minds around the fact that this faith that caused us to be declared righteous by God didn't require us to perform, to jump through any hoop, to observe any rules or nothing. Believe. What's that old song? Only believe. Only believe. When you and I looked up and said, Jesus, I just heard the gospel. I believe you died for me, rose from the dead. 
so that I could be saved. I accept your finished work. Forgive me and come into my heart. God says, righteous. Righteous. Right then. And he says, justified and glorified. And right then, at that moment, you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you are dead. And your life is hid with Christ in God. But it didn't take anything, Pastor Jeff. No, that's the whole thing. Jesus did it all. All right, where was I? If you go to any of those cults or anything that requires performance on your part, you're going to soon discover a broken relationship with the Lord and a radical drying up of your spiritual vitality. Because now you're not leaning on Him anymore. Your fellowship with the Holy Spirit will be quenched. So Paul warns the Galatians and warns you and me, stand firm in the liberty wherewith Jesus made you free. And don't let anybody talk you into anything that's going to entangle you again in a yoke of bondage. As Paul wrote to Timothy, I love this. Paul told Timothy, quote, but you must remain faithful to the things you have been taught. You know they are true, Timothy, for you know you can trust those who taught you. He was raised by his grandmother and mother. They raised him up in the faith. That's the those he's talking about who taught him. And then in verse 15, what did they teach him? You have been taught, Timothy, the Holy Scriptures from childhood. And they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. Because Jesus looked at the Pharisees and Sadducees and said, you say when you search the Scriptures you find God, but you search the Scriptures and you will see they speak of me from Genesis all the way through the end of Malachi. When Jesus said that, there was no New Testament yet, but they had Genesis to Malachi. He said, you search them and you will see that all of those Scriptures, all of those books point to me. So Timothy was taught those books, and Jesus in those books was revealed to Timothy. And they prepped him and prepared him to hear the gospel. And when he heard it, he connected all the dots and said, oh, that's the one, Moses and Abraham and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and the minor prophets and David and the Psalms. That's the one they were all pointing to and waiting for and anticipating and expecting and so that he got saved. Paul said, remember that, son. Don't ever forget that. I want to say to you, church, remember what you've been taught. You've been in this church for a month. You have been taught that there is one way to God. That is his son, Jesus Christ. There is no other way, no other religion, no other person that can lead you to forgiveness there is no other way to miss hell and gain heaven than Jesus Christ. So remember that. And that you have learned the Holy Scriptures. And we're doing that tonight. And they lead us to trust Christ. Now, for he says in verse 5, Galatians 5, verse 5, For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by Him. Now, the law was deceptive as it seemed to offer some kind of an immediate return 
for the sinner's investment. Or in other words, you go do a good thing. Let's say you go, you know, feed the, the homeless one day. And if you're living on performance and not grace, as soon as you feed those homeless, something in you says, you're such a good person. Go look in the mirror and sing a song to yourself. Just go ahead and sing, there is none like you. No one else can do the things you do. I know I can't sing. Edit this off the radio show. <clears throat> but as soon as you do something good, we tend to believe that, that that was an investment that gained me righteousness. But God comes along and says, all of your good works are to me like filthy rags. They do not gain you righteousness. Now, when you do good works after you're saved, they bring you reward in the world to come, and they attest to the fact that you have been saved. There is a huge place for good works, but they don't save you. They attest to the fact that you are saved, but they don't save you. Only one saves you, the blood of Christ. Jesus hanging on that cross, that's it. So, I must have moved something around when I did all that. There we go. It produced a false pride that somebody was righteous when, in fact, he was not in God's eyes. You can easily pump yourself up with false pride and think you're something and that you gained yourself righteousness. You didn't. You never do. But for those who cleave to Jesus Christ for righteousness, his righteousness, there is real hope. There is hope indeed. Our righteousness is by faith. It is his righteousness imputed unto us, and that's the whole message of Galatians. That's the whole message of Paul to these people who were departing from this and going back to the law. It doesn't depend on us. It doesn't rest on us. It didn't require of us anything but faith in his finished work in order to be saved. That's why it's good news. That's why it's good news. How many of you are glad that the message was not this? Hey, good to have you here in church today. I got a message for you. If you will this and this and this and this and do it for three months, you'll be saved. How many of you would jump up and say, all right. But when you tell somebody, all you got to do is look up and say, forgive me. And you're saved. That's good news. Amen. <clears throat> now, when Paul says we wait for it, he means we look forward to it. It points to the second coming of Christ when we're going to be just like Jesus. John wrote, Dear friends, we're already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be when Christ appears. We do know this, that we will be just like him because we're going to see him as he really is. One unfiltered look at Jesus and you're going to be changed to be just like him. Just like him. <clears throat> Next, he touches on works. Do we who are content to rest, on, or rest all on Christ have no works to perform? Not to be saved. The Christian has works, but they don't save him, as we just said. They attest to the reality of his salvation, but they don't save. Paul says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, here's the fact, not circumcision nor uncircumcision, both of those symbolizing the law and our own good works, avail anything. They don't do anything. 
But faith working through love does. The works that follow genuine salvation are works of faith that flow from love, not from legalistic jump through the hoop so you can be saved demands. Religion says you must. Faith says I love, so I want to. Isn't that good? Religion says you must, you better, you have to, you can't be saved. But faith says because I know him and he's living in me, I love. And because I have love, I want to do these things for people. I don't get up here and preach because I have to. I love doing it. It's my gravy. It's Monday through Friday that's a challenge. The works of the Christian are to flow out of love, not out of force or coercion. Having discussed the foundation of their liberty, faith in Christ, that's the foundation. Say it with me, faith in Christ. Paul next discusses the foes of their liberty, the false teachers. Now he's going to home in on the ones that are messing them up. He says to the Galatians, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Anybody know anybody that you could quote that verse to? I do. Of course, they're not here because they're not in church. But if I ran into into them on the street, I could easily say, hey, you were running so well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? What's happened to you? Who got to you? Who sabotaged you? What are you doing? Walking away from what you knew. You started out so well, what happened? How have you so quickly fizzled and fallen? Paul could remember the dynamic days he had spent among them and how eagerly they'd embraced the gospel. They were off and running when he had left them, but someone had raised a roadblock in their path. Now he says, who hindered you? The word for hindered is taken from a Greek word. The Greek word is enkopto. In Copto. And in Copto was used of tearing up a road or putting in an obstacle in the path. In Copto. Paul is saying, Who broke up the road? You were making such good progress on. Who put all those potholes in it? There are good roads and there are roads full of potholes. The potholes immediately slow down your progress, don't they? If it's 40 mile an hour, but you hit a road that's full of potholes, you don't go 40. You go 20 because you don't want to ruin your shocks and, or get a flat tire. That's the idea. That's what he's saying. Who, you were going 40, you were running, you were going unhindered, and somebody put potholes in the road. Somebody broke up the road. Somebody messed up the righteous road that leads to life. What happened? Who did this? False teachers and their damnable teachings ruined the road of faith placing potholes in your path and slowing your progress, if not stopping it altogether. As a pastor, I've done this for 30 years. And I have seen false teaching firsthand with my eyes get into a person's life and absolutely ruin their walk with God, destroy their family, destroy their marriages, sabotage and shipwreck their faith, fill them with anger and bitterness and resentment. I've seen what false teaching can do. 
I've seen a person running a beautiful race, beautiful people in the Lord, just there every time the door is open. But then a false teacher gets in. They're charismatic, they're appealing, they're convincing, they're persuasive. And they'll say 95% of what is right and 5% what is wrong. And the 5% is the strychnine. And it gets in and it leavens the whole lump. Paul says, who did this to you? Who, who sowed this into your life? He was angry. The beautiful road of grace had been obstructed and he wanted the perpetrators brought to light. Of course, we know ultimately who does it every time, don't we? It's an invisible person, ultimately. The thief, Satan, who comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. And he's a master of false teaching, of mixing truth with lie. Has God said, Eve, are you sure? Didn't he really say this? He's a master of distortion and skewing of the truth. And he's alive and well and working on everyone in this room if you don't know the word of God. Matter of fact, I've come to the conclusion, if you don't know the word of God really well, you are going to be deceived. That's why weekend after next, I'm going to start a four-part series I'm calling Be Not Deceived. Be Not Deceived on the weekends. And it's going to be good stuff. Because so many people are being deceived. In his parable on the wheat and the tares, Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. But that night as the workers slept, his enemy, everybody say enemy. enemy. Look what the enemy did. Came and planted weeds, there's the false teaching, among the wheat. And then he slipped away into the shadows. And lo and behold, when the crop began to grow and produce grain, weeds grew up right next to the good stuff. And the farmer's workers went to him and said, Sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where'd that come from? And he said this, very important, an enemy has done this. An enemy, an invisible enemy, the devil. And so it is when our walk with God is obstructed and our road of grace is filled with potholes, slowing down our progress, though human beings were involved, ultimately an unseen enemy has done this. And we need to be smart about this church. Every time you turn on that TV, you got the enemy talking to you nine times out of 10. Every time you open up a paper, the enemy's all in those pages. You read a secular book. Uh, the enemy is, listen, if you don't keep your nose buried in that Bible, then you are a candidate for deception. Paul could see the leaven of this false teaching already reaching down to the second and third generation of Christians in the Galatian community. And this is the trouble with false doctrine. Now I'm going to show you something. This is very important. And what I'm about to show you is, is near to my heart because I'm watching it happen. And it's why I'm believing God for revival. Let's look. This is why God has always raised up prophets and preachers to denounce sin in the clearest way possible. If not exposed and denounced, it spreads. Throughout Scripture, leaven is used as a symbol of corruption. We're talking about leaven. Symbol of corruption. It spreads secretly and unseen until it permeates everything. It usually symbolizes false doctrine at work within the corporate body of the people of God. 
There are several leavens knocking on the door of the church as we speak, demanding that we receive it into ourselves, accept it. And if we do, it will permeate the whole group and we will be corrupted. Leaven was sourdough. That's what it was. It was introduced into the dough of a new loaf, which was then left to stand in a warm spot until the fermenting, spreading influence of the old had thoroughly taken hold of all parts of the new. The only way to stop the action of the leaven, once it had been introduced into the new loaf, was to put the loaf into the oven. The action of the fire stopped the action of the leaven. You know what you're hearing right now? The Word of God, that's the oven. That's the fire. It purges leaven out. Now, here's a fact. There is not a major denomination in Christendom that has not eventually been taken over by the leaven of liberalism, legalism, fanaticism, formalism, ritualism, or some other corrupting ism. Not one. By its third generation, every new movement. How many of you have ever been in a move of, in a move of God? You were in a move of God where the Holy Spirit was moving and people were getting saved and you got filled with the Holy Spirit and had experiences with God. How many of you had that? Let me see. All right, watch. By the third generation, every new great move of the Holy Spirit, born of revival by the Spirit of God, needs a fresh moving of the Holy Spirit if it's going to survive. Here's how it works. With the first generation, freshly discovered truth is a conviction. Can you say conviction with me? That means I believe it and I really believe it and I believe it deep down in my innermost, innermost. I know it's true. I'm convicted. I'm convinced. Those who see it and embrace it, propagate it with zeal. They would die for that truth. For us, it was the reality in mine and Kathy's life of the Holy Spirit and his power and that the gifts were still real and that God moved in power and that you could be filled to the point where you felt like you were going to pop and God was active in your life and he answered prayer and he was right there. This was a truth. We were baptized into it. And everybody around us was. So we saw it, we embraced it, and we propagated it with zeal. We would have died for it. The Bible says they will give up everything for it. The proverb says, buy the truth and sell it not. That's the motto of the first generation that experiences a move of God. By the time the second generation takes over, what was once a conviction has become a belief. The second generation has been taught these truths. Oh, yeah, they've heard it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I was taught that. I've taught the Holy Spirit's real and all that. They have heard the first generation tell tales of battle, fire, sword, persecution, pioneering, and of the high price paid for these truths. The children of the first generation hear all these things. They've been brought up in them, drilled in them, and urged to accept them for themselves. And they do so, but guess what? Not with the same fire and zeal of the first generation. But they believe them, but it's not the same conviction. They can give you chapter and verse for their beliefs, but the zeal to spread it 
has cooled. You know, me and Kathy in our generation, we witnessed everything that moved. We'd stop you on the street. Get in your face. Tell anybody Jesus is alive. Now you got to kick people out there. And even then, they're not zealous about it. Some people, some are, thank God. I heard somebody say, Lord, deliver us from the cage stage. No, stay in the cage stage. The cage stage being wild, crazy, turned on, on fire for Jesus. Give me a bunch of people in the cage stage. Don't shout me down now, church. <laughs> By the time the third generation is in charge, what was first a conviction and then a belief has become an opinion. The truths are lightly held. Compromise is acceptable. Blah. Things are watered down. Distinctives disappear. And an accommodation is reached with dissenters and other groups who hold some things in common. Well, we got this in common and they've got that. So why don't we just all get along what I was talking about earlier? Do you see America in this right here? Come on, church. Oh, let's compromise with everything under the sun. Let's be pluralistic. Let's lose our distinctives. We don't have any right to be distinctive. We're no better than anybody else. So we, we accommodate. We compromise. We flex. We evolve. All the things I said you shouldn't do with truth. First, the sharp edges become blurred. Then new ideas are introduced. Things that would have made the first generation roll over in their grave, the third generation tolerates with a smile. Oh, come on. All of you right-wing, stiff-necked, ignorant hayseed, southern church folk. Get out of the way or agree with us. Compromise with us. We need to all get along. And the minute that a church does that, it's dead. It's dead. The lampstand will be removed by the Holy Ghost and it's dead. The power has gone. The drive has gone. The zeal has gone. The only solution is revival. The only thing left for America, church, is revival. There is no other answer revival. It's not going to come from Republicans. It's not going to come from Democrats. It's not going to come from Libertarians. It's not going to come from any political group. The change that must happen to America must come not by might, not by power, but by the Spirit of God. <clears throat> it must be. A Holy Ghost, God-sent, devil-stomping, God-glorifying revival. A great awakening. Or folks, it's over. It's usually an Ishmael uh, when you, the only, uh, when revival does not come, people drift away or some kind of phony counterfeit revival is accepted. It's usually an Ishmael, born of fleshly effort rather than a genuine move of the Holy Spirit. This is exactly where the American church is today. Believe me when I tell you that. This is why the second and third generation of the children of believers are leaving the church. This is why our nation has almost totally apostatized from the Christian faith. 
We are surrounded by a generation that has never experienced God firsthand. We need revival. Let's stand together, can we? Well, I'm getting that CD. That's good preaching. I need to hear that myself. <laughs> How many of you can see the one, two, and third generation phenomenon? How many of you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah. Well, uh, the end of February, we're bringing John Collier for a weekend of revival. And, but it's got to be way bigger than that. The nation has got to hear the clearly preached, declared Word of God. So we're going to do everything we can from our neck of the woods to preach to as many as we can, as fast as we can, as effectively as we can, because He sent His Word and healed them. Father, thank You for Your blessing. Thank you for your goodness. And we pray in the name of Jesus that through your mercy and grace, before it's completely gone, you would send revival to this land. Those of us who have seen it, Lord, with our eyes, who have tasted of that revival fire, who know what it is to be touched mightily by the Holy Spirit, who have seen devils come out and people healed. Lord, we're looking at a third generation around us that only wants to appease and compromise and settle for a distant shadow of what could be. We ask for revival. We ask that you would send a genuine awakening from coast to coast in every state in this union. If that's your heart, lift your hands to the Lord and let's just pray. Because listen, if God moves, He can do in one week what politics could not do in a century. Father, in Jesus' name, send revival. Send revival, Lord. Sovereign, providential revival. And shake this land once again with the power of God. Here I am to work.